Welcome to episode number 146 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and this is part two of the Ask Me Anything session with Brian Knapp from 4B Components on hazard monitoring for bucket elevators and drag and belt conveyors. Again, this is an Ask Me Anything session that we did inside the Dust Safety Academy well over a year ago. We're just getting the chance now to put this recording out to the podcast community to educate uh, others on this topic as well. Last week, we covered hazard monitoring devices, what kind of ignition source are present, what kind of hazards we're monitoring for, testing and maintenance, and, and several other considerations about the equipment. And this week, in the second half, we're going to talk about what should you do when the system alarms? How do we determine what's normal for these type of sensors? What kind of baseline they should be using? Uh, we're going to talk about equipment certification, who does what or what does the certification process look like? Why can't we use certain types of approved sensors in other environments? Uh, and we're going to talk about hazard, wireless hazard monitoring as well and NRTL approvals. As I mentioned in last week's podcast episode, these Ask Me Anything sessions are part of the free training that we do inside the Dust Safety Academy. We're up over a thousand members now in the Dust Safety Academy. Uh, it's free and you can go there and get resource for combustible dust. There's a community forum to get your questions asked and you can join into these live discussions that we have in the community on these different topics around combustible dust safety. So without further ado, in today's podcast episode, we're going to go into the second half of this Ask Me Anything with Brian Knapp on hazard monitoring and bucket elevators and dragon belt conveyors. That's what I was going to ask around next was what should happen when a system alarms. So choking, you're, you're plugged, the material can't mm -hmm. go through. So only, you, you name some of the bad things can happen, but only bad things are going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. It's going to back up in the machine. It's going to heat up. The machine's going to be slamming against the choke wall. I made that word up, but the wall of material that's there, heating that up, it's going to be a big mess to clean up. You're going to want to make sure you clean up thoroughly because when you start it back up, you don't want embers going all over the place. So that's kind of a bad one. Um, but what are some other conditions and what are some other things people should be thinking about when the system alarms? Um, should they be shutting off belt conveyors? or Well, let's go through yeah. some of the different equipment and, and what might happen when different alarms kind of trigger. Okay. So yeah, if, uh, depending on the type of, of technology you're using, again, like with, with the with the rub blocks and touch switches for belt misalignment, for example, um, you may have a, a certain temperature or a time delay that you say, okay, the, the belt's made contact. If if it's not just a, an intermittent, like uh, what some people may refer to as a nuisance alarm, I guess, um, with belt misalignment, it happens, I think, a lot more than people will realize until they get a system in place. So, so they may need to, to have a, 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 I'd say a very short time delay or, or, or have a lower temperature where it alarms. But once you get to that position, the feed, so the conveyor's feeding it or the, the, you know, the gate's feeding it, it, it may be uh, a best, best practice to close the gates or, or shut off the feed. So you give that machine a chance to, to clear out before you have to shut it down. We've, we've had, you know, some customers that they don't want to shut, shut things down and, and they'll say, well, I'm unloading a truck. I'm not going to shut down until the truck's unloaded. But by the time you get that truck unloaded and, and fed through the bucket elevator, it's, it, there's a lot of heat that could be generated and that's, that's a dangerous situation. So, 
there's, I would say there's, there's at least two conditions where you would want to shut down immediately. The plug condition we already, we already mentioned because there's nowhere else for the material to go. The other is the, the OSHA requirement for, for grain handling applications anyway, which is uh, the 20% belt slip. Once you get to that, that, that much slip, you're damaging the belt. You continue to run it. You're going to have to start looking at replacing the lagging on the pulley, replacing the belting, burning the belt in half, causing a fire, um, all those sorts of things. So, so the 20% belt speed is immediate shutdown. With a lot of the products we sell, the, the, when you look at the default settings out of the box, you'd have um, the, the temperature would trigger an alarm first, which would be a strobe light, a horn. Oftentimes that would also be tied in to shut off the feed automatically. And then there'd be a time delay for, for belt misalignment and uh, a bearing temperature and maybe a 10% belt slip. And, and I think by default, we're looking at about 60 second time delay to, to shut that down, but that can be reduced if it doesn't take that long to clear a belt out. It could be extended if, if they're comfortable with, with that. It's all, uh, risk analysis on the, on the part of the, the end user ultimately. But the 20% belt slip, the, the plug condition, those are immediate. Shut down under load and, and then get out your shovels. Yeah, I had to, uh, to chuckle in my head when he said nuisance alarm because um, hmm. that it really is in the eye of the beholder. We had a, a coal mine explosion here in Nova Scotia in 92, which uh, took, the, took the lives of all 26 miners in the mine because they shut down the methane sensors because they wouldn't stop going off. That, that's a, that would be a nuisance alarm. This thing won't stop going off. Um, yeah. And it's a tragedy. Yeah, but, it's, it's but, not, but these things happen all the time. Yeah. You know, and people don't think it's going to happen to them. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Cause we see this in other equipment and I'm sure you run in this case where you, you come into an existing facility, they have existing equipment running um, and and you install the sensors and then they're just, they're going off constantly because they have, I think of, of spark detection equipment. Sometimes you install that and it goes off automatically because there's sparks going through the system naturally. It just hasn't had the conditions where an explosion can happen. Do you see this when you go and install these sort of sensors? And, and what do you do at that point where, where the client's looking at you going, well, you just installed this noisy sensor that's always going off. What's that discussion? Uh, yeah. As much yeah. As we're talking about going. I mean, we certainly want to have the discussion rather than in some cases they'll just put a, a switch in to bypass the system, you know, and and, and just turn it off, um, which which is is wrong on a lot of levels. But um, yeah, so so for example, the belt misalignment, um, we've we've had these these sensors in a lot of different facilities. There's there was a, a feed mill that comes to mind that, that probably about five, six, seven years ago, we installed a, a system to monitor all their, their equipment. And belt misalignment was a big problem for them. And, and they had these sensors in place and it kept shutting them down. The reason wasn't that there was anything wrong with the sensors or that, that there was anything that, that unusual with their facility. It's that they just hadn't maintained the equipment. They had uh, belts that were spliced two, three, four times. And you never get the splice square every time. So there are times where one splice would come by the, the pulley and the belt would kick over one way and another splice would come by and kick over the other way. The lagging was all worn on their, their head pulleys, so they couldn't track it uh, at the head either. So, so for them, it was a matter of doing the maintenance they had been neglecting for, for 
decades probably to, to get the sensors to do what they needed them to do, which is protect them. Because one, one of the things with belts is, is they're not going to stay perfectly centered at all times. There's going to be a tendency for them to, to kind of wander around. And, and really, you would like them to be centered all the time, but, but the hazard is when it's going to make contact. It's that friction that's, that's causing the issue. So, so the key is making sure that the sensor is going to be the first thing that the belt comes in contact with, as opposed to making the sensor stick in you know, two inches to where it's right next to the belt, and any little movement's going to activate it. So there's a balance there of making sure that the sensor is going to be the first thing in contact. And when you look at the rub blocks we're talking about, you want as much material in there as you can get because it wears through. As it wears through, then you don't have any protection anymore. So the less you have in there, the less protection you have. But um, you know, getting the equipment operating as it's supposed to be. Um, another another area where we see see a lot of sort of nuisance alarms per se is, is the bearing temperature monitoring, and and it's about finding the point what's normal for this machine. Uh, again, on a bucket elevator, the, the machines we're talking about, those temperatures generally are going to, they're generally going to run close to ambient temperature. Your bearings under normal conditions are not going to heat up a lot. If you start looking at other machines that are high RPM, hammer mills, fans, and those sorts of things, they're, they're going to have a tendency to run a lot warmer. And so you know, the 140 degree default setting we have that may not apply for, for these, these higher speed applications. So, so really it's about knowing what, what's normal for that machine, the way that you want to alarm for what we were talking about earlier, comparing two temperatures, ambient or another sensor on the opposite side of the machine, bearings at the head of the bucket elevators and conveyors where there's a gearbox and a motor. That, that side tends to be warmer because you get the heat transferring through the, through the gearbox. So, so there's not always a, a one-size-fits-all uh, solution for that stuff. Now, speed monitoring, on the other hand, there's, there's really no exceptions to that 20% rule. If it's, the belt's slowing down 20%, there's a, there's a big issue. And we have had people call us in the past saying, well, this keeps shutting us down. They say, well, you get your belt slipping. We know, we know. We, we, can't, we can't adjust the take-up anymore and we can't shut down. It's just like... Okay, you know the belt's slipping, the sensor's doing what it's supposed to, and you want to bypass it. Once you have the belt burn in half, best case scenario, or a fire and explosion, how long is you, are you going to be down for? Yeah. Not just going to be a day. At some point, equipment needs to be replaced if it's not yeah. functioning properly. Um, so there is some things you can do, though, I think. And I had a, a good discussion with Rick Smith on the podcast about this. Um, again, it was with Spark Detection Systems, but I think the same thing applies here. When you do the install, and I'll get your, your thoughts on this, but I'll explain it first if I can think in my head what I'm trying to say. But you want to test it in three ways. You want to, you want to do the install and make sure that it, that it uh, alarms and when it alarms, the things you want to happen happens. Equipment shut off, that gets shut off, people are notified, any um, computer logic actually occurs. So you want to test, you want to trigger the thing and make sure mm -hmm. what you want to happen afterwards happens. You want to see if there's any opportunities for it to go off when things are like uh, when you don't want it to. So any false positives. Maybe this isn't as big of a concern for for the type of hazard monitor we're talking about. But if you're triggering um, suppression models, well, you, you, the less false positives you're running, the cheaper it's going to be to, to have those models because they're pretty expensive to fill. 
Mm-hmm. The third one, and the one that causes a lot of grief, is to test your system. I think you do this with the temperature monitor, but test it during normal running operations. So with a suppression system, you could deactivate the bottles. Just run your system through, make sure it's not triggering normally because you have trans metal or you have some sparks. And I think there's there's probably something similar with with temperature monitors. You want to if if you're going to be triggering under normal operation, you kind of want to know when you do the installation. So you want to do a test run, maybe a test batch, a smaller batch. Say, oh, we are triggering triggering it in normal operation, and then that's an indication that you need to do something um, to improve your system. And where it comes with the the suppression systems is you spend a whole bunch of money, you install the system, it goes off. You have ten or you know anywhere between two and twenty bottles go off, and then everybody starts pointing fingers like. You know the the company's upset because it could have been a real incident that they stopped, and you don't know, and they don't know. So you kind of want to run it through in normal operation. And say, hey, is this is this triggering normally? And then there's a, a discussion to have. Okay, why is it triggering normally? And I don't know if there's anything there that you you see with your experience. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's the the first two uh, certainly that, that you mentioned with uh, testing them during installation. We kind of talked about. Uh, already and the, the false positives and nuisance nuisance alarms. Um, I, I haven't heard so much on on testing it kind of in situ without doing the alarming shutdowns because one one concern I would have with with just kind of giving that capability to to without restriction is is then you're essentially bypassing that system that you have in place. And um, people that feel the need to, to run. Uh, and I think this is a, a mindset that has, has evolved over the years. And I think management is, is getting much more open to stopping production for safety. Yep. Um, where it used to be, we, 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 can't, we can't shut down. We got to keep running. We'll deal with this later. But, but you get this mentality with some people still that they need to keep running. So, so we'll just put it in this, this mode that it's not actually going to shut us down, which is essentially a bypass. But I think uh, we do offer the capability to to make those adjustments. Okay, that's you know we're we're not having you know nitrogen fill a fill a parking lot or anything like that. Yeah, they're going to shut down, which which can be a nuisance, and I have to to dig out. Was that temperature too low? You know, it's a it's kind of a, a time of reflection, I think, for them. Was that temperature too low, or or do we just need to do maintenance on this equipment? I, I think I think there things can be tweaked, but I don't think that that they necessarily need to disable the, the system to to see it running. Um, and they may they may have that ability if if they're using PLCs, automation systems, as they're as they're installing these. They'll probably be bringing the sensors online before they actually have anything in place to to do any work. So maybe they'll be logging some of that but but i think in general things tend to be pretty for for these three machines especially the the elevators and conveyors it's pretty similar um in in most facilities the some of the the big areas that can can cause grief for people are temperatures uh depending on if you're in nova scotia or if you're in texas or or you know guadalajara mexico you're going to have different experience with What's a normal ambient temperature? What's what's 
what sunlight hitting bearings and sunlight hitting rub blocks and, and those sorts of things are, are certainly things that are going to vary from region to region, but, but really it's things are, are pretty similar, I think. Yeah, it makes sense. And I appreciate your extra points on deactivating the, the system and kind of running it that way. I do think that that would have to be considered, you know, very closely and, and monitored very closely in that there's, there's a definite issue. Um, yeah. That can come up. When you talk about explosion suppression, I think that the uh, the manufacturers are, are generally very involved with the commissioning phases of, of that. Um, with with the hazard monitoring industry, I, I don't we're available, but but we're not requiring the customers to to have us come out and commission everything. We we'd like for every customer to do that, but but it's uh, it's a sort of a, I think a different mentality, different different industry in, in that regards that the customers don't want to pay us to come out to every facility, but with the, the suppression they're they're more willing to do that. Okay. Um, we got a couple of questions here um, around technology. So first one came in um, when the rub blocks wear through. So we're talking about the, the rub block alignment sensors. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a resistive value that would send an alarm so you can have a sort of an early warning of failure. Um, so I guess, the, is there a way to tell if these, when these blocks are going to fail so that you can replace them? Mm-hmm. There, there may be some, some technologies out there for that. Um, uh, I'm not aware of, of anything. So I, I think the question, the question that I'm understanding would be that if, if you've got, you've got this brass block, which is, which is conductive from one side to the other, if you, cut all the way through it, you're not going to have conductivity across there anymore. It may be possible to do such a thing, but to, to clarify, when I say a rub block is worn through, oftentimes it's not cut completely in half. Right. It's more, there's, there's some recessed in the machine casing that's still holding the two pieces together. The other side of things with, with having that open brass block there with, with some electronics measuring there, Will will add to some complexity for the uh, safety of the the electronics themselves because in a dust hazard environment you've got to follow certain um, techniques to to prevent the electronics from becoming an ignition source in themselves and, and generally that's either uh, having it in some sort of enclosure encapsulated somehow and we've got this this open conductor out there that could become an ignition source in itself so. Um, it, it may be possible or maybe, and there may be some, some companies out there that offer something like that. I haven't seen it firsthand though. We have a, yeah, we have a couple of questions that tie in with that. Um, one is around certifications and, and approvals, um, like, uh, national rest, recognized tech testing laboratory approvals. Just what are the considerations there and, and how important is it to use um, electronics to have those type of approvals? Yeah. In, in the dust. Hazard environments again. We're talking about and it's, it's extremely important um, and and different. Um, and a lot of the focus I have is on North America because um, that's where our office covers. But there's other. So so we're looking at OSHA here and and, and the nationally recognized testing laboratories that OSHA um, has a list of. But but in other countries in Europe, uh, there's ATEX in Australia. They follow IECEX and there's. They've got their own approvals bodies for, for these different standards, and, and we use 
classes and divisions here still in, in these zones over there. But, but for example, in, in these dust hazard environments, um, if the if the electronics does not follow these these techniques for for preventing the, them from becoming an ignition source, then you could be putting in devices that could become an ignition source themselves. Um, a lot of that revolves around, as I mentioned, enclosures, um, preventing the dust from, from getting in, uh, encapsulation as well. Um, heat is, is part of the, the, I guess, a big part of, of the, the equation there, that if, you're, if your sensor is generating a lot of heat, then, then it can become an ignition source if, if dust is getting in and generating enough heat. So, so we're looking at the surface of this, this device and, and how much heat is being generated from that. And, We've, we've seen devices uh, in the past that, that are class one approved, which would be dust hazard in the U.S. Um, maybe class one did one as opposed to, to like in, in U.S. class two is the dust. Class one is gas. Other countries using zones, zone, zone 20 would be the, the, the most uh, dangerous, I guess, dust hazard environment. I think zone zero is, is your gas hazard. But something having a, a class one did one or a zone Zero approval, is it zero or ten or what? Yeah, I like it makes up. I, think I won't try I think, to get it right here. <laughs> and I think they've got a, a slightly different um, approvals depending on if it's uh, mining or, or not as well. But the the gas hazard approvals are looking at gases and, and whether it's keeping gases out or containing an explosion from a gas, but it doesn't necessarily look at things like the the dust layering we were talking about. So so. Some dusts have a lower ignition temperature as well, the dust layering, dust uh, ingress. I've seen products that have class one approval, but they're not even dust tight. So, so, so you can't necessarily use a, a class one approved or a gas hazard approved um, device unless it's a concurrently approved for, for dust hazards. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's important in, in, in Europe, uh, everything that's, Basically, sold in Europe also has to have a CE rating, which is which is more self-certifying that, that our product meets what we say it does. But but having that third-party approval is really what you need for the for the dust hazard approvals because anybody could stick a, a self-certification on something. But um, you know that it's it's very costly to to get the approvals. So so companies that get them. Uh, are definitely going to highlight the approvals. It's, it, it needs to be printed on the sensor. It's in the documentation. If you're not seeing that on the product, then there's a good chance they don't have the approvals because if they spent that money, they want to they make sure you know. And uh, we'll talk about the approvals in a sec, but I wanted to just summarize the class one and class two environments and the gas versus dust because we have seen this. Um, if it is certified as a gas to be used in a gas hazard environment, that's good, but if you're using a dusty environment, um, things like surface heating from a, an insulating layer of dust building up on top of it wouldn't be considered, and dust ingress into the into the the uh, component, and then you know this is beyond my my pay grade, but um, setting load on the the uh, circuits and things and heating it inside there, those are things that wouldn't be considered in a in a gas hazard environment. And would you need to make sure it's not going to happen in a dust hazard environment? Are those the kind of things you're talking about when you're talking about class, well, certified for gas hazards versus yes. certified for dust hazards? Yeah, that's that's right. And, and 
beyond that, even you're mentioning the gas, there's different gas ratings groups, you know, A through D, I believe. And then, then you get into dust and it's E, F, and G are the three, three dust hazard uh, groups. So, so you've got, you've got the class, the division and the group. So if you're, if you're doing something with where you need to, to monitor an area that may have metal dust, for example, and you find a product that's that's got Group F or Group G or Group F and G approvals, that's not good enough for your environment. It has to have Group E. Um, and there's no, and maybe you can expand on on this, Chris. I, I don't know the exact uh, reasoning behind it, but for Class Two Div Two, there is no Group E. For, for metal dusts, and I don't know if it's just the nature of, of metal dust. It's very bad when metal dust catches on fire. I mean, it's, it's compared to the other <clears throat> dust, it's, it's very difficult to extinguish and, and many other things, but maybe it's, it's just because of the higher risk that they just don't, don't allow Class II Division II for metal dust. I don't actually know. Um, I could look, yeah. in, look to it, into it if somebody wants to answer that. Um, shoot me an email. I'll, I'll find out if there's a um, a science-based reason. Uh, the general consensus is that the metal dusts are easier to ignite and explode more violently. And so we treat them with some caution. Sometimes we just, for right or wrong, multiply the number by two <laughs> and say it's twice as bad um, and then things like that. But the real difficulty is there's some things with metal dust that the, the scientists and the researchers haven't figured out when and, and how they necessarily explode more violently. Things like radiation effects and geometry effects because they burn so hot that if you have a large cloud, maybe it propagates faster than a small cloud. And we're, we're still working on that in the scientific community. So in the industrial application community, we're um, applying safety factors and different things. Um, that'd be my general overview. Uh, there, okay. It'd be nice to have a, a more scientific and robust description. I'm not sure if one exists yet, but I can dig it and figure if it does. Okay. Yeah. And naturally, I guess they're, they're conductive too. So there may be some reasons because of the conductivity that, that they wouldn't allow div two and some of them if they get wet they could start off gassing creating hydrogen um so yeah there's all there's all kinds of good good stuff that happens there um you mentioned the certification process can you just walk us through a bit about i mean it's uh i know it's an expensive process from my understanding but what do you do like do you send the the components down to a testing uh, an rtl testing lab and then they just shed some yeah. light on something that's not a really well understood process uh, as much as you can anyway. Yeah, there's uh, a number of stages to it, but, but you, you basically have a, an NRTL that, that you, you work with to um, tell them what the product, what the product is, what, what it's, uh, what we're, what approvals we're, we're looking to get with that product um, to which Standards. So here in the U.S., we've got the UL standards. Uh, in Canada, there's the CSA standards, and so so we we go through the that information, send them the design information, send them the product. They test the products to to make sure it's going to withstand impact and and dust ingress and and measure heat generation and and all that. And it goes into the minutia of, of the warnings that are on the product and and, and things like that, and, and what part numbers we're, we're, we're going to apply to these things. And, uh, and, you know, you pay them a lot of money, and periodically they've got to come to the factory and, and audit things. So there's 
it's it's, it's a long term relationship really with, with these approvals bodies. It's not just a one time, you know, we're we're gonna create this part. Now give us a, a certificate for that. It's 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 a generally a you know months to to years long process to to get that approvals on on a product. What that means for an end user then is you have a higher degree of confidence in the quality and um, operability and operating range of those products. Um, and you do I'm not sure if it's like this as much in North America, although somebody on the the call can talk to it, but in Europe, there is a lot of different um, certification levels and types and and you see you know sixteen letters in a row and they mean something different than sixteen plus one. But you do want to you want to dig into those and and know that what you have is certified for the type of use that you're using it for. The same reason we mentioned with dust ingress into a sensor or yeah into a sensor that that is certified for a gas environment is to make sure that you're operating under the conditions of which it was actually certified and tested for. And I I think there's different uh, like UL I think has some some charts and things that break down all those those characters and what each one means and, and you may have some uh, some members of of this this uh, organization that that have that type of information they can share as well because yep. I think that's that's useful it's it's useful to have that reference to you know we say zone twenty but but there's you know the we talked about the enclosure encapsulation and, and which is the method that's being used and then what it's approved to and there's temperature um yeah. t ratings and you know, it's 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 a lot more complex uh, we'll we'll get some if uh email me if you want more training on that and we'll get somebody that uh that that can spell it out a little better for us um and, and get that in the community as well i think the, the last question you have here and we're, we're just getting up on time um, anyway, is as this was this was a topic they were talking about at the powder show, which I'm not sure if it's going to happen this year or not. But uh, back before when they were going to run it in June, they're mm-hmm. talking about new technologies um, for sensors, feedback, um, wireless technology, um, getting you know better readings from your sensors and devices. I'm just not. I want to ask with four B and the work you're doing. Are you recommending the use of wireless technology and and then even some of these other, I'll say, Internet of Things or other you know yeah. novel technology are coming out? What's uh, the landscape look like for that? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's constantly evolving um, with these things. They, you say the Internet of Things or the Industrial Internet of Things and Industry 4.0 and all these different buzzwords. Um, we. We we are we are adopting some of these these things, um, not necessarily for the actual alarming and control of the systems, because for example, wireless um, it it can be very reliable for for periods of time. It can be very unreliable for periods of time. It can be very intermittent. Um, for the actual monitoring of the equipment for the hazard monitoring for the, for for alarming and shutting down equipment we prefer that to be hardwired whenever possible because it's it's going to be the most reliable solution so so you have a wire going from the sensor to the plc or the controller and then a wire from there to the motor contactor yeah that's that's going to be your best best reliability uh, option i think and i can see some 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 customers are tempted to 
to utilize wireless because it reduces the cost of installation. You don't have to pull all these wires, but but you've got to consider that reliability. And, and we've had people that are that are on the the coast that, that have a wireless system and it works fine until an aircraft carrier comes in and, and just swamps out all their their wireless. They can't even use their cell phones. And and We've heard of similar things on the river with barges where, where a barge comes by with, with a CB radio that's probably beyond the uh, FCC regulations and they key the radio and, and things go and just, just lose communication. So, so there's, a, there's, there's consideration of reliability. What I would, what I would prefer for, for customers if they're, if they're going to, to utilize wireless is to consider what, what is your, your backup plan if the wireless doesn't work, because if you look at you know, like a proprietary communication protocol between these two devices and you're using wireless, if it stops working, then then you're either kind of stuck with what you got or you start over with, with a new system. But, but if you look at something like a wireless Ethernet connection between two points, okay, give it a shot. It's not as reliable as you want. You can run Cat5 cable. If it's, if it's more than 100 meters, you can convert it to fiber and run it. But there are some situations where there's just no physical way to run a hardwired solution. So um, some some customers have had like trippers on open belt conveyors, and we haven't talked about trippers. But but in some some instances, you've got these these trippers that can move along the the belt conveyor, and you position it over the bin you want on a bin deck. It's an open belt primarily, and you stop it where you want it. And then there's two or three extra pulleys on there with, with bearings and potentials for belt and pulley misalignment. And so how do you monitor this when you've got a 200-foot belt conveyor? Um, some some facilities have done like a Festoon cable system to do that. Some have done wireless. Some have put wireless in and, and had issues with reliability and then gone back to, to figuring out a hardwired solution. So, so with wireless... It, You've got to be prepared to to come up with a plan B if if something is not reliable, and and it's really difficult to uh, you can do site surveys and and everything will look okay, but it's just a, a snapshot of five minutes or an hour or whatever, and you're expecting this thing to work for ten years. With with the Internet of Things, we've 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 been on board with with collecting data for for analysis for for added value. Um, for being able to send emails to people, but, but we stress that that email is not your primary alarm. You don't rely on being at your desk or seeing an email come through on your phone to tell you that your belt's about to catch on fire. It's just additional information. And I think what that has helped with is from a, a management standpoint, you may have 10 facilities and you got different people running each of those facilities. If you can gain access to all that information from a, a central location, that helps you manage what's happening. You may not have your, your employee telling you that they get, you know, a hundred misalignments in a day on a, on a belt conveyor because they just keep silencing the alarm and running. But, but once they realize that there's this, this added, uh, big brother, I guess, yeah. <laughs> over there, they, they, they know that they're being monitored more Then they tend to, to make the right decisions more often with, yeah. with shutting down and taking care of things. So, so yeah, technology is going to continue to evolve. I'm sure wireless will continue to get more reliable, but, um, but so having a plan B and then for the, for the internet of things, having that, that 
mindset that it's not your primary alarm, but it's adding value. You can go back and graph temperatures and see what's happened. You can get these email alerts and, and analyze the information, but, but you can, you can view it in real time too, but it's, it's just not your primary alarm source. Yeah, it makes sense. You can use that to, to track near misses. You can use it to um, track preventative, like make decisions on, on preventive maintenance over time and that. Yeah. But I like your point that, yeah, you don't want to be, when any safety system, you want to be thinking about, okay, well, when does this not work and how reliable is it? Um, you don't want to be putting anything in between to make it less reliable that right. that you respond when there's a fire or that you um, do what needs to be done when, when a safety alarm um, occurs or your system doesn't trip because you got a barge driving by. That's no good either. <laughs> so yeah, the points yeah. are well taken. Or your internet goes down. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. I mean, that has been a, a great discussion around hazard monitoring for these types of systems. Uh, really, really interesting. And I'm sure we'll get lots of feedback as people um, wants to replace for these sessions as well inside the Dust Safety Academy. Um, we'll have uh, Brian's contact information with this video once it's posted and the replays up. And again, he did do a presentation as well on, on this topic um, in the Digital Dust Safety Conference, which is available inside the Academy as well. So everyone have a, a great week ahead. And I want to say thank you again, Brian, for um, coming on in and talking through this session with us. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks for having me. It's been, been fun. Excellent. Thank you very much. And uh, have a good weekend, everyone. Okay, so that's it for this week's podcast episode. Again, this was part two of the Ask Me Anything session on hazard monitoring in bucket elevators and dragon belt conveyors with Brian Knapp, Vice President of the Electronics Division for 4B Components, based out of Morton, Illinois. In the second half, we talk through alarm systems. What should you do when the system alarms? How do you set your baselines? How do you determine what's normal operation? We talk about equipment certification. We talk about wireless monitoring. We kind of close up with some different thoughts on even Internet of Things and where you can use the data that you're starting to get from your sensors to make decisions on things like preventive maintenance, on near misses, in order to go back and analyze what went wrong, when things do get upset conditions, and other things like that. Hope you found this Ask Me Anything session informative. As I mentioned at the outset, um, you can join the Dust Safety Academy by going to dustsafetyacademy.com. Actually take part in these live sessions, get your questions for combustible that's answered. Every week there, we are putting new videos and documents up as resources for the combustible dust community. There's a big community forum that can be accessed through that platform. Um, and of course, we do these type of trainings in there with combustible dust safety experts from around the world. So I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast as always. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. And I want to say thank you for everything you do in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work that you do every day. 